0: Sour. That's what author Jennifer Hubert describes as the time in Chinese history referred to as the Cultural Revolution. So, why are there Cultural Revolution restaurants in major cities all over China? Yep, you heard me. Cultural Revolution restaurants. They recreate the cuisine and atmosphere, even of a time that was generally described as, well, bitter, sweet, and sour. If this was overall a pretty bad time for many Chinese people, why are there restaurants remembering and recreating the atmosphere and conditions that people lived through? Well, memory is a funny thing, and often official accounts of what happened, for any period in history, lack the nuance of everyday life. A huge part of that nuance is cuisine. In today's episode, we're going to talk about food, culture, and memory surrounding this period of Chinese history. Later, I have guest Diana Rivas on to give her take on the topic. This is Mysteries History Theater 3000. So, why are we talking about food anyway? Is it really that important? Yeah, sure it is. Everybody needs to eat. And when people aren't eating, it creates massive problems. Before we get into the history, though, let's talk about just a little bit of background about Chinese food, because it would be kind of silly to be talking about how important it is when it changes if we have no idea what it's like when it's not changing. So the first idea is that traditionally, Chinese food can be divided into five flavor profiles. Sour, bitter, sweet, pungent, and salty. This represents the huge diversity among Chinese cuisine, both with all the spices and flavors that came into China and also just how big it is. It's also typically divided into the eight provinces when we talk about region and where cuisine is coming from. So we won't be necessarily talking about each of those regions or even each of those flavors, but it's important to keep that in mind, that any change we talk about does not necessarily go for all of China. And in fact, it probably doesn't. We shouldn't assume that. However, we also shouldn't assume that people were completely unable to make tasty dishes or at least nutritionally sound dishes that somewhat resembled what they used to eat. In The Cultural Revolution Cookbook by Sasha Gong, she describes in detail how the various provinces had different things on tighter rations, but they still managed to create interesting recipes that filled bellies and kept people alive. The Cultural Revolution, a decade of fear, rationing, and violence, certainly brought about many terrible things and terrible memories, but It also brought some recipes and some memories of food. So let's talk about that. But first, the history. But let's talk about the Cultural Revolution what was it anyway? Essentially, in the late 60s, Mao Zedong encouraged a rooting out of anyone that might have opposed him or the communist regime in any way. What ensued was four years of confusion, violence, and distrust. Historian Frank Decatur talks about the cultural revolution from a different aspect, one of everyday life, the writings of people and not of party officials. It's actually easier to understand the Cultural Revolution and its effects if we look at it through the lens of the Great Leap Forward and the famine that ensued in the late 50s. If the Cultural Revolution was rough to live through, then the Great Leap Forward was even worse. Mao Zedong began this collectivization campaign as an effort to fully thrust China into socialism. This was in the wake of Stalin's announcement and Mao miscalculated the cost of these measures. With little incentive to work land that was no longer theirs, farmers began to work less, and combined with ill-advised crop productivity techniques, pushed by people that didn't know the land, the Great Leap Forward soon pushed China into massive famine. So in an effort to escape blame from the disaster of the Great Leap Forward and the famine, Mao incited the Cultural Revolution in an attempt to fight criticism of him or the communist government. Led by Red Guards, students in fact, who began to follow the orders of Mao and attack their professors along with anything or anyone that was reminiscent of non-communist China. Decatur says that what people remember about the cultural revolution was not necessarily the death because even in the entire decade from 1966 to 1976, the death was dwarfed by the famine a decade earlier. So he says that the memory of the cultural revolution is not so much tainted by death as it is trauma and hunger causes trauma too, big time. So, talking about food and memory surrounding it during this time is pretty apt. But what about memory? In a long retrospective, writer Yi Yun Li talks about the importance of food, biologically and socially. She talks about her grandfather, who lived through the Great Leap Forward and the famine and then the Cultural Revolution, where he helped to raise her. The rationing and the regimented lives of those who lived through the Cultural Revolution have become, among other things, memories of hunger, but also what little it took to get satisfaction. She remembers a soup that her grandfather made for her and her sister. It was boiled water, lard and soy sauce. And she even remembers 10 years later talking to some squad members in the late 90s, freezing cold that night, saying that that's all she wanted. Not because it was the best thing, but because she knew that that's what would have been possible. While they talked about these grand dishes from hometowns, maybe their favorite dish that their mother or grandmother made, All she remembered was how good that soup was because that was what was available. So many necessities and everyday items were rationed. Everything from flour, rice, sugar, to salt, oil, eggs, starch, etc. Everything that you might need to make what you would think of as a good meal. She even writes that whatever wasn't rationed became a treat remembering that she and her sister would sip from bottles of vinegar and soy sauce because they could have as much as they want. Even in the final years of the Cultural Revolution, the memory of the famine from two decades before was used to say that this wasn't so bad. Stories of people eating tree bark in earlier years, and even reports of cannibalism during the Cultural Revolution were not unprecedented, which brings us to the idea of hardship and how the cultural revolution was remembered and talked about. It really seems that one of the most remembered aspects of it was the hunger and rationing, and it's living in memory, maybe because enough people survived relative to the famine from 20 years before that that's the tale they have to tell, not death, but hunger. So let's talk about those Cultural Revolution restaurants again. At the beginning of the episode, this seemed crazy. Why would anybody want to go back to somewhere that was purposefully recreating ration meals? It seemed unthinkable that anyone would want to do that, let alone pay for it. But when we think about the memory of the Cultural Revolution in context of what had happened just years before. And then we think about the recollection that we talked about from Yi Yun Lee about how her grandfather talked about food and how she talked about food even in the 90s. It makes more sense. Perhaps the people that lived through the Cultural Revolution see what they ate as a badge of honor. They lived through it. Or perhaps it's not a badge of honor. Perhaps living through a time of being without, whether through famine or through rationing, simply changes how you view your food, changes what you value. Certainly that would make sense. And of course, this is not to say that those who have lived through famine or ration don't have similar tastes for what we all consider high-end delicacies. But Maybe we can all think about what we value as the food from our childhood. It probably isn't five-star caviar. Memory is a funny thing, and the memory surrounding food seems to be even funnier. Perhaps these restaurants serve more as a way to show off the creativity and resourcefulness of the people of various regions and how they dealt with this. And perhaps it's not. Maybe it's just more like a museum, meaning something much different and much deeper, of course, to those who actually lived through the Cultural Revolution, but to others, perhaps they just see it as a tourist spot. Regardless, it's important to note that the memory of this event because more people lived through it than the horrible events before as the Great Leap Forward and the famine that ensued. The memory will always be tainted more by the trauma, as Dicotter says, than the death, and people have different ways of remembering that trauma. Food will always be a vital part to any human memory, traumatic or not. And so I think these restaurants, these cultural revolution restaurants are an invaluable way to look at the memory, the collective memory of what the cultural revolution meant to everyday people. Up next, we'll chat with guest Diana Rivas and talk about her take on what memory means when we talk about history. Stay tuned.
1: Hello, how are you? I'm
0: great. How are you? Thank you so much for coming on to this week.
1: Yes, of course. Of course. I'm doing great. Glad to be here. I'm looking forward to it.
0: All right. Well, we're looking forward to having you. Thank you. So as on this podcast, we always like to have a guest come on and just kind of have a little bit of conversation about what we've been talking about earlier in the episode. So I'll give you a little bit of a recap. You know, we've been talking a lot about the Cultural Revolution and specifically how kind of a personal lived memory of it. Um, In many accounts, we can see a lot of kind of callbacks to the food and the rations and you know how when we compare it to people's lived experience and memories of the great leap forward and then the ensuing famine um, you know about a decade or a decade and a half before the cultural revolution uh, it seems to be different even though all three of these things were terrible to live through Um, there does seem to be like this difference and, you know, I think as I've been doing some reading and, you know, as we've gone through this podcast, it kind of seems that part of that difference is linked in that, you know, the great leap forward caused a lot of death and so did the famine and the famine caused like, you know, complete shortage and just lack of food, but the cultural revolution had a little bit less death and a little bit less, you know food shortage per se and more just rations and so that leads to this weird memory of you know people seem to kind of remember some things i don't want to say fondly but you know it's not a completely blocked out memory Mm -hmm. so i guess you know like let's let's talk about it what what do you think about that sort of thing you know
1: Well, for that sort of thing, I think that it's really interesting how you mentioned um, that memory can be such a complicated uh, kind of recollection of events that happened and of one's lived experience. I think uh, when it comes to, you know, like my research with the May 4th movement, you know, we learned so much about post May 4th nurse. Um, So the generation that Uh, eventually grew out of the time for the May 4th uh, era. And then we see that they remember the experiences of May 4th and through them were able to learn a whole kind of new perspective as to how it was arranged ideologically and how Mm -hmm. it tackled uh, topics and problems that arise in culture. Mm one's kind of understanding of Chinese culture. And so we also get to learn a lot from the experiences of teachers in that time. You know, teachers were having the very real reality that their students were engaged in such a complex way of thinking of China and of thinking of themselves and of the world. And so it's a very interesting kind of perspective and memory that you can get from each individual party that took place in that. And that party as like a political party, yeah. <laughs> like just a person. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. No, that's so true. I think you know, individual accounts are so important to understanding any part of history because it's it's always going to be different. You know, from whatever the official exactly. account is, and that doesn't even necessarily mean, um, you know, a, a political party's account. Like maybe the CCP's account of the May Fourth Movement um but you know even an official historical account maybe uh given for a western audience um it's never right. going to give this kind of nuanced and like in-depth perspective of these really complicated events that i feel like you know when we learn about them and we didn't experience them or we didn't know somebody personally who did it's so easy to just you know learn the facts and then kind of be done with it you know what I mean yeah yeah and yeah so I think the memory like we've been talking about I'm sure that the viewers are so sick of hearing we say that word (laughs) memory (laughs) but memory is it's it's crazy because you know even through terrible circumstances or just hard circumstances you know individual memories will sometimes find these things that you know aren't terrible and cling to them and I think that is a universal thing you know um of course yeah yeah I talked a lot in this episode about uh these cultural revolution restaurants and this will be my last question um, and when I first heard about them, I thought, wow, that is crazy. Why would somebody, let alone somebody who had lived through this cultural revolution, you know, go sit down and pay to eat what they ate, you know, with rations in the cultural revolution? And but, you know, doing my research, I feel like just this of memory and how people, you know, will always kind of cling a little bit to their lived experience, you know, maybe that is a bit of a catharsis or maybe it's just a memory. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think um, on that topic in particular, it's really cool that there are these restaurants that are kind of almost commemorating that memory. Uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's really interesting. And we often, we often see that all the time were uh, memories kept alive by uh, many different peculiar things that we hadn't probably thought about before. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, for the May 4th movement, one thing that certainly did not live on uh, to the kind of ideals and values of Chinese society was individualism, where that was something that came up during the new cultural movement as uh, something that was favorable to the minds of young individuals and where they wanted uh, these aspects of uh, self-determination and self-enrichment, but it wasn't seen in the Western way that we understand individuals to be. It was more Mm -hmm. so uh, nourishing oneself for the greater whole of collectivist uh, mentality. And so that was something that very quickly fell through the cracks in terms of, uh, you know, what really what mentality really persists on today in China, and that is one mindset and one that is using oneself as part of a whole. Yeah,
0: yeah. You know, that's actually that's so interesting that you mentioned that here at the end of our time because. Um, you know, uh, a work that I mentioned a lot earlier in the show is this retrospective um, about a woman, or by a woman, excuse me, who grew up in the Cultural Revolution. Um, you know, and she talks a lot about her grandmother and, or her grandfather, and how he always talked about food and how he would always kind of prioritize himself eating. And he always said, uh, you know, eating is the most important thing you can do. If you, if you aren't eating, no one can help you. And, you know, she thought that was so selfish. But it turns out in the end, it, it yeah, it seems like it is kind of more about this idea of, you know, what you were talking about with that sort of individualism, not really like this selfish thing, but more, you know, maybe helping yourself in order to help the greater collective good is yeah. that yeah and so yeah it's really interesting that it seems like that has kind of crossed over from what you're talking about and what you've been studying in the may 4th movement all the way into the memory of people that live through um you know the great leap forward and the famine
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah well this has been a really interesting conversation diana thank yes, you so, so- much
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Thank you. So glad to have you. This has been another episode of Mystery History Theater 3000. If you liked what you heard this week, make sure you hit that subscribe button. And join us next week when we talk about hope and fear in Japanese sci-fi.